Welcome to the RowWorks Legacy Podcast, a podcast that inspires and motivates individuals through personal stories from Olympians and athletes of all backgrounds. Each week, we will be delivering interviews about various athletes' true backgrounds and what made them who they are today. This podcast will focus on what identity these competitors have adopted and what they would like their legacy to be. We're going to offer some hard-hitting, inspiring stories of great athletes and what it takes to be the best. Now here's your host, Ironman competitor and national team rower, Jack Nunn. All right, hello everybody. This is Jack Nunn with the RowWorks Legacy Podcast. This is our second edition of this podcast. I'm here with my father, John Nunn, an Olympic legend in the rowing world. He won a bronze medal in 1968 at the Olympic Games in Mexico City in the double skulls with his partner, Bill Maher. And he was also the Olympic coach for Team USA, uh, for the rowing team, for the sculling team in 1976 at the Montreal Olympic Games. So he's going to go back and we're going to do a little father-son interview today. It's pretty exciting. I set this up uh, like this so that we'd start with my father because of the influence I've had throughout my life. Also a huge influence in starting this podcast to inspire others. So we're starting with my father, John Nunn. And welcome, John. Welcome, Pop, as I like to call it. And uh, so I'm going to start by uh, going back, going back in time, um, uh, just starting with uh, your or our family history uh, and what athletic backgrounds your father and grandfather had and um, how that uh, all kind of inspired us to be what we are today, I guess. So go ahead and uh, start this. Okay, well, uh, hello everybody, and uh, we're uh, <clears throat> really glad to glad to do this. Um, yeah, I uh, I was very fortunate to have a, a lot of athletic background in my in my family. Uh, my dad uh, actually had uh, played football and lacrosse at uh, Cornell. And uh, then he actually uh, went on to play professional football in the original American Football League, and they won the uh, league championships in 1936 for the Boston Shamrocks. And uh, and then his dad uh, was was a boxer, uh, a professional fighter. Uh, you know, I guess not very successful. He talked to me. He said he, he was his arms were too short, but uh but he he did it and uh then my my uh, mom's dad w rode uh in around 1912 for uh columbia university in europe and and then uh, uh we also had a lot of artistic and, and music uh, background my my mom was a very good pianist and, and he she was an excellent uh painter and sculptor but i was always more interested in athletics so i didn't really pursue any of that uh, uh the other the artistic and uh, music part but i i definitely pursued the the athletic part um and then w growing up we moved around so much that we i never really was any in any organized sports uh except for i was in some little league uh, baseball uh, when we lived in rochester but we we kept we i lived in 15 different places growing up so it, my dad kept moving around to different jobs and uh, so really, uh, uh, then we, we moved to Canada when I was in, in the ninth grade and Canada was kind of, uh, interesting because it got me, uh, into, uh, 
playing, uh, get, learning how to skate and playing ice hockey because uh, we lived in this uh, community right on Lake Ontario and we had a, a pond in our backyard and all the neighborhood kids would go over uh, during the uh, during the day and uh, they go we play ice hockey in the back in our backyard and so uh, uh, I got to be fairly decent ice hockey player but my brother got to be pretty good because he was I was 12 and he was eight and uh, he got to be pretty good and he, he went on to play uh, a goalie for uh, uh, Cornell University and then play he played some semi-pro goalie and so, but so this is you know we had all this kind of uh, stuff going on my dad was a big tennis player so I got to be uh, a fairly decent tennis player but um, you know I never uh, I, you know I never was super good I played it uh, in high school I played uh, basketball and football uh, but I was never outstanding in any of these sports yeah it's funny growing up uh, with my dad with pop uh i'd always be playing something in some sport and i my i don't know whether it's generational or you know genetic but i was always never comfortable with playing one sport and i always uh complained to you pop about uh why can't i be the best at everything and it's very difficult however uh our grand or my grandfather your father uh, was great at everything. He was kind of like, um, I guess, uh, like a Bo Jackson sort of uh, uh, player. I saw pictures at uh, your brother's house that I've never seen before of your father standing next to the coach uh, in lacrosse gear and also football gear. And the guy looked like James Dean. And he was just like, what's up? And just a, a tough, you could just tell his demeanor was just tough and awesome. And I was like, wow, I'm I'm related to him. So it's, it's a cool, it's cool to go back and, and think about this history because it's, even though I never met, um, my grandfather, uh, because he passed away at a young age, uh, just the legacy that he left through my father and then through me. So, and also the ice hockey part, uh, that's where I get my hockey, uh, growing up here in LA was from my father's influence in Canada. So, that's another part of this uh, legacy sort of, uh, you know, just living with all that influence. So it's, it's a cool, it's all great stories. And so, yeah, tell us where you're, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, tell us where you grew up and tell us about your childhood. Well, uh, we moved around a lot, so <clears throat> I didn't really play too many organized sports because uh, we were just keep, we kept bouncing around. I mean, I, it, when you live in 15 different places, it's hard to really put down any roots. Uh, but uh, I went uh, for four years to the same high school, Ridley College in St. Catharines, Ontario, and uh, there uh, played uh, pretty consistently basketball and, uh, and football. And uh, then at home, we, I didn't ever, the, the, the ice hockey was too, they were too good uh, there to, to play. But I, I played at home because when, you know, when in the winter and the, and the summer, uh, winter vacation and stuff like that. But the, uh, so uh, I never really was uh, exposed to rowing until, uh, until I got to Cornell. But, uh, uh, but actually, uh, which I never paid any attention to, but my, my grandfather actually had, had rode at Columbia, so I had that, that background there. Uh, but 
really, I guess uh, with I played a lot. I played with sports a lot with my dad, mostly uh, mostly uh, tennis and uh, squash. Uh, but uh, he uh, he didn't play with me after after uh, I I didn't. Uh, it, squash is a little different. You can't go swinging wildly your racket around like you can with tennis, and uh, so. I hit him right between the eyes one day in squash, and so that was the last time he ever played. But when I was, we lived in Rochester at that point, so he, that was the last time he played with. And then my brother, I talked to my brother, and he said, "Yeah, he wouldn't play with me either after that." <laughs> so, so I ruined my my brother's squash career. And so, uh, yeah, um, there was definitely some sports growing up where I was terrible, like basketball, anything that required a vertical jump. Um, and, uh, also, uh, swimming, I was terrible. Uh, that's a whole nother story, but, um, but yeah, you can't be, uh, perfect at everything. So, uh, let, tell me, uh, let's tell the, the, the listeners, how did you, uh, get into your sport? How did you find rowing? Because it's such an interesting story and it's got so much history. Um, but tell us how you got into rowing and, uh, and what, how you got started? Well, I um, I showed up. Actually, uh, I had a lot of influence from my dad as to where I went to went to college because uh, he said, "Well, you you've got to go to Cornell, and that's the only place you should apply." So I said, "Okay." So I just applied to Cornell. But see, there's an f- interesting backstory here, which also has to do with athletics and has to do with swimming too, because my dad was also a pretty good swimmer, and uh, he he worked as a lifeguard at Tagantic uh, Falls State Park. In, uh, in Ithaca uh, during the summer uh, to make money. And so he was working as a lifeguard at the state park and this kid uh, gets in the water and, and has, you know, is having trouble. He has, to, he has to rescue, he rescues this kid and he pulls him out of the water. And uh, it turns out that he was uh, Herb Williams, he was a good friend of Herb Williams and, uh, and Herb Williams became the director of admissions at Cornell and that was the kid that he rescued was Herb Williams' son. So when I got to Cornell, uh, the director of admissions looks, hey, well, yeah, this guy looks, he looks like he, he'd be a good uh, candidate here for uh, Cornell, so it approved, you know? <laughs> and uh, so that was a little backstory that I had a little help that uh, uh, that I didn't, never knew about until, until much later. But uh, anyway, so I get there and I have every intention, my dad was, you know, he was a professional football player. So I said, well, you know, that's what I ought to do. I ought to play football. So I go down. I go to the uh, uh, Shelkoff Field, uh, where the where that's where the football team plays, and uh, they're I going to talk to football coach, and uh, he says, you know, I got my team already picked, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, we're not really looking for anybody. And uh, besides, uh, he said, uh, where'd you go to school? I said, well, in St. Catharines, Ontario. And he said, well. We, we haven't had any luck, good luck with Canadians. I said, no, 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 I'm, 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 not, I'm not a Canadian. I, I'm, I'm an American, uh, and, uh, but I just was going to school up there. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, whatever. So he, he talked with me for about half an hour, but just was all negative. He said, you know, you, you, you know you're really not, you, you're not really cut out for this, whatever. But he said, but if you come out and watch practice this afternoon, and if you... If you think it's not too rough, then you can come out and we'll give you the uniform or whatever. I said, okay. So I walked right from his office into Barton Hall, which is the this huge building they have at Cornell because the weather's so terrible. 
that they they actually uh, they were used it for the ROTC program to march around and, and on, uh, do drills and stuff and then they they was they had a quarter mile track on the inside of this building and and uh, that's where they played basketball and uh, but during at registration time that's where freshman registration or that's where all the registration was and at that time it was before the internet it was all index cards so you, you go over you go to a table and you get an index card or whatever i mean that, that's so that's what you do and so you'd be standing in line so what the rowing team did was that they would send their guys around the building and say okay look for any guys that look like they're they're, they're big and they might be athletes and uh hook, send them over to the to the rowing table and, and we'll, we'll sign them up and so anyway so i'm just standing there and, and they sort of could figure out the freshmen because they're the ones that kind of you know looking around and don't know where they where they are and you know this other they look lost so they so uh so anyway this guy walks over to me and his name is bill stowe and uh he uh he walks over and he says hey how would you like to go out for rowing and i said well i'm gonna play football he said well you know why uh why don't you come over and uh, talk to the coach and uh you know your year uh you're going to graduate in 1964. That's the year of the Tokyo Olympics, and and we're we're gonna uh, we're our team is going for it. We we have a great team. We're gonna we're gonna try for the Tokyo Olympics, and uh, and you could be part of it. And he said, and I and he said, why don't you come over and talk to the coach? And I so I said, okay, yeah, I'll uh, I'll go over and talk to the coach. So I walked over with Bill and uh, talked to the coach, and that was Walt Schleffer, the freshman coach, and uh, he said. Uh, how, uh, how tall are you? How much do you weigh? And uh, I said, well, I'm 6'6 uh, six, six and uh, uh, 196. And he said, that's perfect. And, uh, and, I, and I said, and he said, have uh, uh, you had any experience? And I said, no. He said, that's the way we like them. And so anyway, and then, uh, so, so I said, well, what, you know, why, why don't I give it a try? So he said, yeah, come on over this afternoon and we're, we have the, the tanks, the indoor the indoor tanks right across the street here at Teagle Hall, and you can try out. And so, and so that's what I did. I, I, I tried it out, and it was like immediately, it, I said, wow. And, and, and immediately I was like doing really well, and, and they were, you know, I was like in the first boat immediately, and it just, it just clicked completely. And it was, everything was, everything was right. I was the right size, the right, uh, the right genetics, the right uh, uh, fast twitch muscles, and uh, it's fast, fast twitch, low, slow twitch combination, and everything was was it just uh, fell on the line. And then, as it turned out, Bill Stowe was the guy that that grabbed me out of the line. Uh, the next year, uh, when I was on the varsity, the, the, I was on the freshman team in, in uh, that year in '61. And then in '62, I ended up in the varsity w with Bill Stowe, winning the national championship. And then he went on two years later in '64, uh, after he, gra he graduated in '62, and he went down to Vesper, got into the Vesper uh, team. Uh, that was a legendary uh, team that won the uh, gold medal in Tokyo, and so that was uh, you know a great uh, a great inspiration for me. Yeah, and then you won two national titles and also uh, many other races through that time. Uh, the Cornell 
boat. The lineup was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. That's also another funny story there. But tell us a little bit about your coach, uh, because Harrison Sanford is pretty famous, and it has a direct connection to, again, a legacy here going back from coaching the 60s, 70s, but going back to the 30s, a connection here to Boys in the Boat. So everyone knows, a lot of the listeners know about the Boys in the Boat story, uh, the University of Washington crew who represented the United States and went over to Berlin and beat the Germans against all odds. Uh, that book uh, is just famous and they're going to make a movie about it. Uh, George Clooney actually is going to be the director. Uh, so all that news is coming out this year. And so tell us a little bit about the connection because it's, it's quite, it's, it's amazing really. Uh, between your coach and the boys in the boat. So tell us right. about that. Well, yeah, this is, at the time, I had no knowledge of this at all, you know, and for a long time I didn't. And I really didn't, until they, the boys in the boat came out, the book, I didn't I didn't really know about it even then. But then I was, you know, reading the boat, and I said, wait a minute, uh, read, reading the book. And uh, the uh, Al Albrechtson, who was the coach of the boys in the boat, was the stroke of the University of Washington team in, uh, and I'm, it's around uh, 23, 24, and 25. I think those are the three years. Uh, he was the stroke, and uh, my my coach, Harrison, they called him Stork because he was really tall and really really skinny, and he, and, he, uh, and so they, call, they called him the Stork. Uh, it was his nickname. Of course, we never called him that because, you know, it, it was, that was kind of, for, you know, uh, socially forbidden to say something like that we just call him coach but uh but but anyway he was the seven man in that washington boat and they won uh two two iras and they were second in the in in the third at poughkeepsie so they uh they were very very successful in at poughkeepsie at the ira regatta which is the was the national championship at that time and uh the, uh, the collegiate national championship, and uh, it, it be, because of their success, uh, a lot of Washington rowers became coaches in uh, in intercollegiate coaches in the East. So they they'd uh, they'd graduate, and uh, Al Arbrickson stayed at Washington. He became the Washington coach, became the Olympic champion coach in 1936. Uh, Stark Sanford came east to Cornell, and uh, he he coached six national champ uh, six IRA champions while he was at Cornell, and uh, and while I was there, uh, I was on two of the two of the six, and actually I think they were the last two of the last two of his six. But but he uh, in the ten years uh, that that when I graduated, the ten years before they had they had had six national championship teams. I mean, so that's the, the, the Cornell team at that time was, was incredibly good. So I was really fortunate to, to get there at that time. But the, uh, the thing, the thing was, is that, uh, then all these other coaches, uh, the, the Norm Sanchu at, at uh, 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 Wisconsin, uh, Fred Schock at, uh, at, uh, Princeton, um, I mean, they were, they were all over the place, all these Washington guys, 
were uh, were all over the the intercollegiate their coaching. Uh, they were uh, because of the the success of the of the Washington Crews in uh, intercollegiate competition. So that's interesting. Uh, you bring that up because now, currently, uh, presently, to this day. A lot of Cal success, so I went to Berkeley, which was a, a direct competitor to University of Washington. If you guys read the Boys in the Boat, you'll know Cal was evil uh, with Washington. We think the same. We have a huge uh, rivalry going. And so it's interesting, uh, fast forward all these years, the timing of it, uh, my father uh, rose with my, against my coach uh, in the 60s, Steve Gladstone. Gladstone rode at Syracuse and then coached at uh, Cal Berkeley, two stints, and then now as a Yale. Um, but now we're seeing through our glory years, which we won a lot of races and IRAs and Pac-10s, uh, what have you, uh, at the turn of, this, of the 2000, so 98 through 2001, we won everything. And those guys on those teams are now coaches at different programs and they're still there. So again, a legacy because you're winning so much, that has a profound effect. And um, so I went on to coach at Loyola Marymount, a, definitely a smaller program, and I didn't coach that long there, but Scott Franson, one of my teammates is now the head coach at Berkeley. So he's coaching the varsity at Berkeley. Um, and Mike Wallen, who was a teammate of mine, is now at Chicago Rowing Center. Uh, another guy who is, uh, this guy, Tom Quigley, has been the coach of the Coast Guard for years. So that is the legacy. And I remember Craig Amerikanian, who was my freshman coach, um, told me, he goes, this is what we need. We need energy coming from our program to, to the masses. We, you know, he, he praised this. He's like, this is a great thing. This is a legacy. And I remember Craig saying that to me. He's like, you do that coaching. You enjoy it. And, and I did, I, it was a lot of work and I enjoyed it, but now I'm doing a RowWorks indoor rowing program in Long Beach and um, it's just not, it doesn't allow enough time to coach and do, I did it for a year and almost killed myself, it was a lot of time. So, but that's, that's this whole legacy we're talking about is, it's really interesting to go back and see what those coaches, where they were as rowers and then now coaching uh, people to then fulfill their dreams. And Craig Arcanian, uh, was a Cal alumni, coached under Gladstone uh, for the freshman, and then went on to his own program at Stanford. So he coached at Stanford for 20 years uh, and just uh, retired last year. So, um, so it's 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 really cool stuff to to look back in our sport um, and you know and just see all this history. And so, tell us about your path to the '68 games. Uh, everyone knows you be it's funny because my father becomes more famous and I joke about this, but it's, it's funny cause it's true. He becomes more famous as each Olympics goes by because there are less and less scholars in the United States, which is kind of sad, but it's just the way things are going right now. The rest of the world is just so good at this sport and rowing and there's so much competition. But also, he becomes more famous as time goes by because he's one of the last medalists, uh, or one of the last boats, small boats, sculler, sculling boats to have won a medal in the last 60 years. 
uh, last year in Rio, or two years in Rio, sorry, the last Olympics in Rio, uh, there was no Olympic uh, scholars from the United States. So we didn't even have a chance to win a medal because no one represented the United States in our sport, in sculling. So uh, hopefully that'll change next year in Tokyo, but not sure about that. Um, but tell us about your path to the 68 games and um, how that how that all evolved. Well, uh, when I had a retention, when, and actually I did, I went to the I went to the Olympic trials in 1964. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was a member of the first uh, the first camp boat that the U.S. had uh, in 1964. They uh, got collegiate rowers from all over the country to uh, come out, come to Laconia, New Hampshire. And it was Jack Fraley from MIT and Norm Sanchu from Wisconsin were the coaches. And they put teams together uh, to, they put two eights together to uh, uh, enter the trials that were held at uh, New York Athletic Club on Long Island uh, and uh, entered enter the Olympic trials in the eights. And, uh, so we did that, and uh, we we did okay uh, at the trials. But uh, that was Vesper was there, and they had this incredible boat with all these guys. Uh, they were they were sort of a camp boat, a senior camp boat, because they they had these guys that had already graduated. We were all our guys were you know just just getting out of college. I mean, they were just just seniors or juniors or senior in college. All the uh, all the Vesper guys were all older guys that had already graduated, like Bill Stowe, he'd been out for two years. And then they had uh, these really uh, notorious guys like the Amlong brothers, uh, who were uh, notoriously uh, crazy and, uh, and funny. And uh, uh, anyway, there's there's a million stories about that. And, and then they had the Boyce Bud and uh, Emery Clark from Yale, who had graduated a few years before. But anyway, they had, so they had a really incredible crew. So. Uh, our uh, our team ended up uh, losing in the uh, at the in the semis or the or the rep I guess it was a repechage uh, to Yale by I think we lost to them by half a half a length and they ended up <clears throat> in the finals finishing fourth so you know we weren't that bad but but it's just that uh, Vesper uh, just wiped everybody else out so then. Uh, then they had the trial, they had a separation of trials where they had the small boat trials uh, a few weeks, or like maybe it's like uh, five or six weeks after the eight trials. And so I got together with uh, one of my uh, one of my teammates from Cornell, uh, who was a roommate of mine at, at the at the boathouse. I was we were uh, uh, caretakers uh, at the boathouse. And so I actually lived at the boathouse at Cornell. And uh, this guy, Kevin Green, uh, was actually a, a full-blooded Mohawk Indian, and so that was a, that was a lot of interesting stories about that, a lot of Indian lore and stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, he was a really good rower, and uh, so he was going to be in the four without. And they said, "Well, he said, well, why don't you come to Buffalo Westside and train for uh, the summer in '64?" And uh, so uh, and, and get in, and we had a four with uh, put together, but as it turned out. Uh, that didn't work out so well because uh, our bow our bow man uh, was another Cornell guy, Bob Fallon, 
and he uh, he was working at a beer distributor or something, and he was lifting a beer keg and threw, threw his back out, so we didn't have any spares, and so that was a, like a couple of weeks before the, or a week before the trial, so we, we, we didn't even make it. So I, but I made up my mind right there. I said, look, I'm gonna, I'm going for the next one. I'm going for Mexico. Uh, because uh, I'd had this, you know, I'd had the, the experience of uh, rowing with uh, Don Spiro, who uh, had made the single in the, uh, in the, in the uh, uh, Tokyo Olympics. And uh, he, he didn't, he ended up six, but then he went on, you know, a couple of years later to, uh, in 66, he, he uh, won the world championship in the single. So I had all these uh, other people that were kind of setting the example for me. Hey, you can do it. You know, look, look at this. And uh, so that, that's when I decided that I was going to go for uh, go for Mexico. And uh, I then I went to grad school in, in Michigan and had some interesting experiences there because I was uh, uh, I didn't have a boat in my in the, in the first year so I, I ordered a boat but I didn't I didn't I didn't hadn't gotten it so I met these people that were uh, kayakers from the from the they had been in the Tokyo uh, uh, the Tokyo and Rome and Tokyo Olympics uh, in in the kayak and uh, this gal had won a uh, bronze medal in this in the single uh, kayak uh, I guess it was the the 500 meter uh, sprint and uh, uh, so she, Mar uh, that was Marcia Jones and her sister Sperry, and then this other, this other fellow that was a, a canoeer that had defected from Hungary, and, and they were all at the University of Michigan studying in grad school. So I, I would go out with them, and they say, "Here, I'll get in this, you know, we can get in a kayak." And uh, so I, I became a kayaker, uh, and uh, I didn't really have a single kayak. So they said, "Okay, well, here, we got this double here. We'll put a sandbag." A 50-pound sandbag in the in the, uh, the front seat, and then you you can uh, you can try to you know keep up with us, and so that's what I did. And uh, anyway, so but then I got in at the end of the toward the end of the year, I got my single. So then I started rowing my single, and uh, and then during the summer, I went down and uh, rowed at the E-Course Boat Club uh, with under this coach by the name of Nick Pappas. Who was knew something about sculling, so he gave me some sculling coaching, which I'd never had before. Very cool. And then during the Olympics in '68, um, that was just those are full of stories. Uh, I have many, many stories I could tell you, funny ones. Uh, but tell us the the process or your heats and your semis and also the final because Mexico City uh, for you listeners who are, are tuning in if you Olympic history um, the Mexico City games were at a high altitude uh, about around 8,000 feet and anyone knows if you try to do anything uh, high activity or high exercise at 8,000 feet you're going to be short of breath so that Olympics was notorious for being um, difficult on the athletes as well as the smog down in, in Mexico City, uh, but also a lot of things going on with uh, human rights issues, but also high altitude. But let's tune it. Let's let's focus in on more of the process of how you were able to uh, get your bronze medal um, under all the odds because you guys weren't favored to be even in the final, if I remember. Um, there were a lot of big crews there, a lot of, um, 
the East Germans and the Swiss and all these uh, contenders. <laughs> so tell us more about that process. Okay, well, uh, I actually I have to bef go back a little bit because uh, when I graduated from Michigan, I decided I, I got a job offer. I got a bunch of job offers. I, I got my MBA at Michigan. And uh, <clears throat> at that time, MBAs were real hot commodities. And uh, I was getting flown all over the country to, uh, uh, to, for jobs. And uh, so this it was great because I was getting my wealth weight paid and all this stuff. And I was, you know, touring the country, uh, you know, getting, getting job offers. And uh, anyway, the, 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 the best job offer I got was in, at Pillsbury because uh, they, they said, look, I was in marketing. I said, look, we got this brand new product, the Pillsbury Doughboy. And we want you to be the product manager, and and it was the best job offer I got. It was the best pay. Everything was, and of course the Pillsbury Doughboy is still going to this day. Uh, but I, I couldn't take it because of rowing, because uh, Minnesota is just like all the places where I lived, and uh, it, it's it's uh, it's frozen in the winter. And if you're switching from sweep rowing to sculling, which I was doing, you you can't. You can't be, uh, you know, lifting weights and stuff on the inside. You have to be out. You have to be in the boat learning how to scull because sculling is totally different than sweep. So you got to spend a lot of time in the boat. And and I had raced uh, against some really good guys uh, when I was uh, in uh, rowing for E-Course, uh, including Bill Murr, my former my partner to be uh, for the Olympics. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I, I got racing some racing, really got my clock cleaned, you know, and I said, you know, I, I, I need more time in the boat. So, uh, I decided to take an offer, uh, turn down that offer and, uh, uh, come out to Los Angeles to work for uh, Rexall Dragon Chemical Company, uh, which gave me a, you know, it was a decent offer, uh, but it allowed me to come to, uh, to California and also... To, to utilize the uh, Olympic facilities, the 1932 uh, venue in Long Beach for rowing. And uh, so we, I had the, the venue, I had the, uh, the, the, the water, the beautiful water, which uh, we didn't have at Cornell. We had a lot of, lot of you know, sur survival at sea kind of uh, uh, water, uh, like open ocean rowing basically. And uh, you can't you can't learn you know good technique when you're bouncing around in, in, in giant seas. So so anyway, I came there, and then in uh, in 1967, I went back to the uh, uh, to the trials in uh, uh, New York City again uh, for uh, for the Pan American Games. They had the Pan American Trials, and uh, and then uh, I went back there with another uh, another uh, Long Beach uh, rower, John uh, Van Blom, who was a very very good scholar, and and uh, he uh, he needed a boat and I needed a boat, so I made uh, made a contact with uh, Don Spiro, uh, who had just won the world championships, and so he lent his his boat was not the biggest boat. Uh, you know, was not the, the largest size single, and uh, John was a little lighter than me, so he lent John his single, and uh, and then uh, he arranged for me to get another single from New York AC to for the trial. So we uh, we uh, both got boats from New York AC, 
uh, courtesy of Don Spiros, uh, because he was run for New York AC. Uh, but of course, then uh, John, John and I went back there and finished uh, one, two in the trials and, and, and beat all the New York AC guys. And so uh, the, the Jack Soldier, the coach back there was very, very upset. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, he vowed never, never to do that, never to lend anybody boats again, you know. So uh, anyway, uh, but, but so because of that uh, uh, Pan Am experience, and then uh, we went, then John and I went over to the, uh, the European Championships in Vichy, France, that uh, later that year and made the finals and uh, uh, we met, you know, we actually were learning a lot as we were going around and, and to these various competitions and uh, learning about uh, uh, how to how to pitch a boat and how to, uh, uh, you know, the, how to set up a, how to set up a boat and how to, how to change loads and all, all we're, we're learning all kinds of stuff that nobody had ever talked to us about. We just sort of had to learn it on our own. And then, so anyway, uh, that was the whole, the, the, the whole, uh, pre, pre lamb. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's of course it's a long, long story, but we, it, it we, uh, you know, we had that whole year and then went into the, uh, 68 trials and, uh, uh, John Van Blom ended up winning the, uh, cause only one, there was only one qualifier out of each trials. And so. John Van Blom was the, was a sing, won the single scholar sing, single sculling uh, slot, and then uh, it was like six weeks later, uh, and I and I got together with uh, Bill uh, Marr, partly because and he had been I, I'd been on the the double on the on the team from the year before he'd been the single scholar, and uh, and then I'd known him I'd met him in, in Detroit, and so I I had some you know experience with him there. And, uh, you know, and then he'd had some experience, other experience with other people at other times that he was, he, he, uh, didn't, what didn't care to partner with, with these other people. And so, so anyway, so I ended up with a partner that was really good and we, and we went really fast right, right away. So that's how we, uh, and we won the trials in, in, in Long Beach. So that was the other thing that the trials were in Long Beach. So I moved out there, used the Olympic course, and then we ra we raced on the Olympic course, uh, in, for the 32 Olympic course for the 68 trials. So anyway, then then we eventually get to um, oh, and then we go to high altitude training. Of uh, course, this is all part of this high altitude thing uh, in uh, Colorado, and we went to Gunnison, Colorado, at the Blue Mesa Reservoir. It was exactly the same altitude as Mexico City. And I think the actual, I think it was 7,700 square, uh, 100 meters or something like, or, or 7,700 feet, something like that, uh, above sea level. Um, anyway, it was exactly the same as Mexico City and everything was great, except that the, uh, the relative humidity in Gunnison, because it was on the eastern side of the, uh, of the Rockies, so that uh, it didn't rain very much there. So the, the, usually what happened is the, the weather system came in and then as it started to go up in altitude, the rain wouldn't fall until it was already at the top or over the top of the Rockies. And uh, so it was very dry there and the humidity was very dry. And so everybody that was there developed uh, uh, cough and, and uh, sore throat and everyone was coughing and, and my partner developed bronchitis 
and he had bronchitis for six weeks and never got rid of it. And so that was a, that was a big problem in, in, in Mexico City. So that, and anyway, uh, that sort of led to, that sort of uh, exacerbated the, uh, the high altitude problem because he, my partner, passed out after every race. He, he passed out after the, the heat, the semifinal, and the final. And for the heat, and now he never fell out of the boat like other people. So this is the other thing. We were, we were watching these races, you know, after our races were over. We were watching races, and guys were falling, you know, just completely collapsing, falling out of the boat, and, and uh, unconscious. So they had actually uh, not just referee boats. They had medical boats tr following the races, pulling guys out of the water so they didn't drown. Because you fall, you fall in the water when you're unconscious, you're going to drown because you can't breathe. So, so anyway, he he would make it to the dock every time, but uh, but the problem is he collapsed on the dock. So, the first time, they uh, he collapses on the dock, and they the Mexican medical team picks him up, and they put an oxygen mask on him, and they take him to this tent. Well, uh, unfortunately, they forgot to turn the oxygen on. So luckily, he was uh, he was awake enough, or just he he, he he knew he couldn't breathe, so he whacked the mask off his face, so he he survived. Otherwise, he would have he would have uh, uh, been asphyxiated in the medical tent for because he couldn't breathe, you know. So so anyway, then but then he was because of the bronchitis he had, he would uh, he would go back to bed. So he went and, and because we won our heat. We didn't have to race. They had a rep, so they had a day rest. Then they had repishars. Then they had another day rest. Then they had the semifinals, and uh, so we had three days, and he was in bed for three days. So that was the other weird thing is that uh, we never practiced because he couldn't he couldn't get out of bed. So the, the alternate Tom McKibben uh, got in the boat with me, and we'd go out and practice. so nobody knew what the hell we were doing because they they'd look we'd be out there practicing and say, "What the hell are these guys?" They you know because they. Uh, we, you know, we were, they were, he was a, a sub that was, that was practicing with me, you know? So anyway, so we end up, uh, then, oh, and then we, the, the semifinal was kind of uh, memorable because the Czech team that we had, uh, met over in, uh, over in, uh, Vichy, France, uh, who were two-time bronze medalists in the, in the world championships and the European championships, uh, and we had, John Van Blum and I had watched these guys rigging a boat. And we didn't know what the hell they were doing because uh, we didn't know anything. And uh, they were using a plumb bob coming off the uh, top of the pin and uh, measuring the distance between the, uh, between the uh, plumb, bo plumb bob line and the, uh, and the uh, uh, line of the, of the rigger just to, to measure the, the pitch on the oar. We said, geez, we didn't, know. We, we didn't know what the heck they were doing. So it was, you know, it was all stuff that we didn't even know, and and uh, all these guys were you know, super sophisticated, and but we, you know, we we learned fast, and so uh, we we were we kept adapting and uh, doing things, and uh, actually by the time of the Olympics we were uh, we were rigging, we became very aware of pitches and angles and pin pin. Uh, uh, pins being bent and all this kind of stuff, and so we would check check our boat every day, and because they're we had these aluminum tube riggers that kept bending as we practiced, you know, and so we, we said, hey, well, uh, what we did is uh, we added back braces to our uh, to our boat to, to to stiffen it up, 
and and I and I think we even put some kind of epoxy coating on. They had these uh, strings that were holding the tubes together, and we put epoxy coating on them to stiffen those up. And uh, so we were doing all kinds of all kinds of stuff. But uh, but anyway, during our semifinal race, the Czechs were in our race, and uh, we we knew them because they were you know they were some of the best in the world. You know, so they're right in the lane next to us, and they boom, they just take off the off the line, and they were gone. So I said, well, Bill, let's not worry. We, all we have to do is finish the top three to qualify. And we were in second. And I said, just, you know, let's let them go. And we get to the 1,200 meter mark. The race is 2,000 meters. This is you know, a little more than halfway through. Boom. The bow guy in the Czech boat is laying on the deck. He's totally unconscious, just completely unconscious. And so that was the end of their regatta because he couldn't move. And uh, so we we go by them and we beat everybody else in the semifinal. So we made the final. And so uh, we get to the final, uh, you know, starting the final. And this was one of the weirdest things. Uh, and you can sort of see it on the times that we uh, we get to the 500 meter mark. Nobody knew what to do. Now we had a really fast start. We had a fast 500, but we were afraid. We, you know, we were concerned that Bill wasn't going to make it, you know, because he, he passed out every race, including this, including the final. So he, he, he didn't really have much left. <laughs> he, was, he used it all up. But we were, you know, we did what, and we seen all these guys, you know, falling out of the boat and getting rescued and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, we, we rode the first 500 and pretty much everyone was even. Everyone was doing the same thing because nobody knew what the hell to do. And, and then the Dutch... Uh, in the second second 500, they decided to go for it, and so they the Dutch went for it uh, right there and and uh, and raced, and they made it to they made it to first, and then but then the Soviets uh, caught them, and we were we were last at the at the thousand, uh, but then we rode through rode through East Germany, West Germany, and and then the the Bulgarians and ended up ended up third, but uh, uh, the but anyway, it was it was like all this crazy unknown stuff was going on, and uh, it uh, it made it really challenging to, to because you couldn't. I mean, you didn't know what the heck to do, you know, and and uh, and it was uh, everything was sort of up in the air. But uh, but anyway, then well, to, there was uh, the funny story out of this was at the end uh, after the races were over. Uh, Bill's parents and my parents were both there to, to watch the Olympics and they they arranged for a dinner after the dinner of the evening uh, of the, after the race uh, and uh, uh, I showed up and uh, and some like some of Bill's relatives showed up and uh, uh, I I think my I think my mom and dad showed up because they you know they were there too and and uh, my, my fiance at the time Maureen she showed up and everyone was there except for Bill. And so we had this big dinner and everyone, you know, said, hey, congratulations and everything. And then I, Bill never showed up. So anyway, so the next day I see Bill in the Olympic Village and I said, Bill, what happened? We had dinner last night. And he said, you know, I was so depressed. We didn't win the gold that I, I just went out, went out drinking and, and started drinking tequila. I said, well, how many tequilas did you have? He says, well, I had about eight tequilas. I said, eight? He said, well, how do you feel? He said, well, I feel okay. He said, and you know, the cough's gone. The cough's gone, you know. 
So if only we'd used the tequila, the tequila approach earlier, uh, you know, before all this happened, see, then we maybe would have done a little better. But nobody, uh, nobody suggested the tequila remedy to the bronchitis that he had. Yeah, I mean, just so unbelievable that whole 68 games. And uh, for you listeners, you know, we're just starting off on this episode, but uh, we have a lot of um, connections with the 68 uh, Olympic group. And we just had the reunion, the 50th uh, anniversary reunion at Colorado Springs at the U.S. Uh, Olympic Training Center uh, just last year. So uh, I'm on the kind of on the board of the children of the 68 of the 68 games and trying to kind of make these memories and stories kind of come to life and as far as you know inspiration but you know just to keep the the spirit alive of 68 so i'm happy to going to reach out to more of the olympians not only just from rowing but from all the sports around so it's 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 inspiring and it's uh, I'd like to tell these stories in class. Um, there's many others. Uh, we, we don't have time to get into it all, but uh, it's just incredible. And and it's really like when I hear this, uh, it's I've heard it so many times. But when I hear the story, it's like threading a needle. You know, you're you're in an unknown. Here you have all this information. You, you know what to do on race day, and then you're just thrown. You know. The kitchen sink at you and you don't know what to do with all these new things it's it's really incredible how you guys were able to make it every day and um you know and do so well and and um and really make it all happen with the unknown so and mexico city will never happen again uh, an olympics like that will never happen again because of those those lessons learned in high altitude that it the athletes just can't take it. Um, so people know, or some people don't. Uh, my father was also the coach. So he, it's kind of a rare situation where you have an Olympic in rowing, where you have an Olympic medalist and an Olympic coach. Now, Mike Tatey is one, uh, an example that also won Olympic medal in the eight and has uh, coached a gold medal winning team. Um, but there's not a lot of coaches out there. Ted Nash is another one, a uh, living legend. Um, but my father is one in sculling that's pretty rare. So tell us about your path, though, after 68, uh, quickly, because my father was in the running for 72 for Munich. Tell us quickly about uh, how that didn't happen. Uh, and that's a pretty relatively short story. But also tell us about the uh, the journey or the, um, their path to the becoming the 1976 U S men's sculling coach for the Montreal team. Well, uh, after, <clears throat> after 68, I, uh, I basically retired and, uh, the, uh, because I figured I, I, well, I, I fairly quickly had, uh, I, I got married the same in 68, after, right, a month after the Olympics, I got married. And in fairly quick succession, uh, I had uh, three kids. And so by uh, by 72, uh, well, yeah, I, I had three three kids already. And, and uh, my, I decided to uh, make a comeback and uh, 
1971 to go to the Pan Am game. So I, I made the Pan Am team uh, in the double. And with Tom and Kevin, we went down to Cali, uh, Columbia and rode uh, at uh, beautiful uh, Lago Colima, which was incredibly horrible. I mean, it was just like the, uh, uh, just the worst. Uh, it was in the mountains again. It was high altitude. And, and they had these winds coming uh, out of this canyon. They had a dam. And the, as they came across the dam, the winds would separate and they'd go, they'd be a headwind at the start, a, cro a direct crosswind at the middle, and they'd be a tailwind at the end. And, and, and there was these giant waves and it was just uh, terrible. But anyway, we, we did it and we made, we made it. And then, uh, uh, so then I said, okay, well, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go for, uh, I'm going to go for 72. So when I was working at the time, for a company in uh, in Torrance, uh, California, uh, Martin Marietta Aluminum, and uh, it was real high tech company doing a lot of a lot of uh, military work, a lot of uh, aerospace work, uh, a lot of uh, aluminum, uh, titanium, all, all kinds of metals. Uh, uh, and uh, anyway, uh, I. Uh, so I approached my boss. I said, "Look, I, I'd like to take some time off to uh, train for the train for '72." And he said, "No, you know, you can't do it. You're you're too vital to the organization." And at that point, uh, you know, I had three daughters at that point, and uh, I said, "Well, uh, you know, I got to be responsible. You know, I, I can't I can't just you know, throw my career up and have nowhere, you know, no income coming in and, and just kind of uh, have nowhere to go when I come home. And so I said, okay, well, I'll just stay. So anyway, unfortunately, uh, the plant closed uh, three months after. <laughs> anyway, it, you know, uh, it, it, I really, I really wasn't that vital. Or, uh, uh, so uh, the whole thing collapsed and uh, they just, anyway, it was, you know, the corporate, big corporate world uh, kind of situation. But uh, so I missed the uh, 72 Olympics, but then I started uh, coaching because uh, at uh, USC and I was the, you know, I was an assistant coach at USC for uh, Bob Hillen, who was the head coach. And uh, actually uh, it was there that I, uh, I, I coached some people like AC DuPont I coached. And, uh, and then some of the people I coached were the, I coached mostly the, like the JV and crews like that but then Hillen kept getting upset with me because the JV would uh, would be beating the varsity you know so he, he'd get upset you know this is you know this can't happen you know but uh, and then I actually coached uh, the, the only two uh, USC uh, the only two people from USC that won a national it won an IRA championship uh, ever uh, and that was uh, uh, McLeod, I think uh, was running my. I can't think of their names right now, but they, the um, anyway, they were, they went back in a pair, and they they beat the uh, Columbia pair by two feet. So I know that I was instrumental because they they had no idea what they were doing when they first started, and so they they got a little bit better. So uh, and just the fact the margin of victory was so little that the, but anyway, that, but then. Uh, at one point, uh, Bob Hillen was known to uh, get, uh, he, he, he would throw tantrums, you know, he'd just get, he'd just get mad and he, he broke a lot of megaphones in the boat and stuff like that. He, he would just, you know, kind of go off the handle. 
Well, anyway, so I was on the boat with him one day, and uh, this was all volunteer, by the way. I, I wasn't getting paid for any of this. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I've, I've uh, lost a lot of money uh, being uh, kid, being involved in rowing for a long time. Uh, but the because uh, it's it's all been I've all done everything for free. But the uh, anyway, I'm out in the boat with him one day, and I said to one of the guys, I said, "Well, look, watch your catch or whatever." I don't know what I said. He said, that's it. I don't want you seeing anything. Just drive the boat. I said, you know, I really don't need this. So what I did is I said, okay, screw it. I'm out of here. And I went and left uh, the USC boathouse. And I keep my I kept my boat over at uh, Long Beach. And I said, look, I'm just going to row over here. Well, this, is a, this was like in 1973 that all these, uh, uh, all these girls had showed up to row because... In, 19, in 1973, they had announced rowing was going to be an Olympic sport for the first time. Joan Lind and Karen McCloskey had been rowing successfully internationally in, in Long Beach, and they, you know, and everybody knew who they were, and they were the most successful scholars uh, in the country uh, that, from the U.S. And they, you know, they won the, uh, all these championships and things, and and so all these girls showed up and. And they were, you know, there was people down there coaching. But I, and so I was out there in my single. I said, well, what the heck? I'll just coach some of these girls. And so I just informally uh, coached them. Uh, and, you know, most of them were very appreciative. Of course, there was one, uh, uh, Nancy Hilliard from Seattle, who I was coaching one day. And uh, I think I repeated a few too many times. Get your legs down. Get your legs faster, quicker legs, quicker legs. And uh, she uh, she uh, announced that she wasn't uh, too happy with that by saying, "Just shut the f up." And she uh, she did. It was unedited, un un unedited. Uh, uh, shut the f up. Uh, and uh, so I figured, well, maybe maybe I said that one too many times. But anyway, but the point is that this all led to me becoming the Olympic sculling coach because I was coaching all these women. Some of them thought I was okay because they talked to, I think, uh, various people. Jack Fraley was another guy that I'd known from Laconia. And uh, he was he was one of the guys. And, and that, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember the, the coach, the, 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 co the coach that was, that was the, uh, I'm trying to remember his name now, but... Uh, uh, anyway, he's he's the guy that started the head of the Charles. He he was a coach at Northeastern, and uh, he uh, he was the Olympic sculling coach. And he had a, he had a heart problem, and his doctor told him, "No, I don't think you can do this. You have to you have to stay home, and uh, you can't you can't go to Montreal." And so anyway, so they they were looking for another coach, and so uh, they uh, they said, "Hey," and so Jack Fairley asked, he called me up, and said, "Hey, will you be?" Uh, Willing to do this, I said, "Yeah, sure." And so, so I get uh, at the time, I was uh, working for a, a, this was nineteen seventy six that I was working for another company, and at that point, I wasn't working for Martin Marietta, Marietta anymore, and they they gave me permission to take uh, six weeks off. So I went back and then and was the uh, coach, uh, the Olympic sculling coach in Montreal, and so that's how that all came together and uh you know and it was there was 
interesting stuff that happened there too. But uh, but anyway, I'll, we can yeah. Go and then um, and that boat, the you coached John Van Blum there, right? Uh, and then in the quad, they placed uh, fifth, sixth, sixth, yeah. yeah. So uh, a very good result again in the quad. They placed sixth in that Olympics. A very good result, I believe. That has been the best well, result. Well, no, they had one. I'd say that was the, the that was the other sculling event that uh, or that success that U.S. has had. That it, it, it was the quad in um, Atlanta, I think. The quad in Atlanta finished uh, second, yeah. I, I think, and that uh, and that was the best. That was the best result that the U.S. has ever had, and in the Olympics. And uh, but this was the second best result because because they haven't they haven't made the final since and uh, and but anyway it was it was kind of that was interesting because I was coaching these scholars and uh, uh, there was a very famous scholar uh, Jim Dietz uh, who was a single scholar and I was his coach because that, you know I became his coach it, it, I was coaching all the scholars so I'm out there. They had this little trolley going along on the side of the course, and, uh, and I'm riding in a thing and with my stopwatch, and he's he's racing the heat against uh, Sean Dre uh, from Ireland, uh, who was a very good scholar at the time. And so they're racing neck and neck at about around the first 500, and uh, and so I said, well, maybe I'll check Sean Dre's stroke rating, see where he is, because they were rowing in a ripping headwind with uh, about a foot foot and a half waves and you know it was rough and headwind and so anyway so I checked Chandra's and I said well okay he's at a 32 and so then I and then Jim was rowing right next to him so I so I said okay now I'll check Jim and I and I went yeah I had to turn where's Jim you know because Jim had in there's a three stroke you have to count three strokes and then then that get you get the you can get the time you get the stroke rating with three stroke stroke watching um in that period of time, he had lost, Jim Deitch had dropped back two lengths. And so I was like, what the heck? You know, because, you know, I mean, that's is ridiculous. Well, what he was doing is he was uh, rowing way, he rowed way back, long way back, and then he dragged his oars out of the water, you know. And uh, unfortunately, when you got foot and a half waves and a ripping headwind, and you're dragging your oars out of water, you're going to go whap, 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 and, and it, 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 it's, you're going to be toast because your boat's going to be bouncing around. You're going to be stopping your boat every time you catch an oar and uh, every time you catch a wave. Uh, and uh, so anyway, so we get back to the dock and uh, I say, Jim, look, you've got you've to gotta get more loop. You get this ripping headwind and you're, you're getting caught in these, in these waves and, and you're, it's killing you. Say, look, just come in and get a little more loop, more drop of the hands, get the oars off the water, and you're, you're going to be much better. He says, everybody tells me that. <laughs> so, you know, so, the, and, and then my quad that I was coaching, and I was trying to, you know, in the, in the they were in the repishars with the East Germans. And, because uh, uh, the, the Soviets had beaten them in the, in the, in the heat, I guess. So they went to the repishars. So we were in the repishars with them. I said, okay, let's go for it. And see if we can beat these guys. And so, okay, and then we had a plan, you know, okay, let's take it up here and take it up there and let's go. So anyway, so I, I, I'm watching the race, along the race, and, you know, and they just kind of, they're just kind of going along and they don't do anything. 
they don't, you know, and the East Germans beat them and they don't, they don't move on them or anything, you know, this, they qualified for the final, but, uh, I said, well, what, how come you guys didn't do what we said? No, we decided not to. <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, these are kind of things that with certain coaches, uh, that you don't do that. Uh, no, you don't. With, Never. Uh, with, with, uh, yeah, no, I have many stories of coaches where if you did anything, uh, other than what they told you, it was, uh, you were going to be, uh, out, severely, off the team, you know, severely yeah. reprimanded at yeah. least, you know. So you definitely follow what your coach says. That's definitely a, a thing. Don't test your coach's limits. Uh, so that's a message for you guys out there, for your kids, if you're listening. Um, so let's move on. That's super interesting history and stories and what's made you who are who you are today. Uh, what is your best advice for the listeners who are interested in trying a sport or any new sport? What would your best advice be? Um, I could probably answer this question for you, but well, I, I want you to answer that question. Can I, can I tell... One more story about uh, one of the coolest things that ever happened to me in any Olympics is is uh, my uh, interaction and, and you know about this because uh, you you met uh, you met Walter and uh, but while I was coaching in in, uh, in Montreal we had to get on a, a bus uh, from the Olympic Village to the rowing venue which was on an island in the middle of the St Lawrence River a two thousand meter course that they cut out into this island. And uh, anyway, so we uh, get on the bus, ride down there. So it just so happened that I, I got on the bus and uh, sat next to this guy uh, from Romania. And uh, so we started to talk and uh, he spoke perfect English. And uh, his name was Walter Lambertus. He was a single scholar. Uh, and so, you know, I just, you know, and he said, well, what, you know, where are you from? I said, I'm from the United States. And. I, I, wrote, I was a bronze medalist in the uh, Mexico Olympics in the double, and uh, here, I'm here coaching the scholars, and, and he said, oh yeah, well, I'm, you know, from Romania, and whatever, and, you know, it just, we talked for, you know, I don't know, four minutes, maybe, or three minutes, I don't know, and then we got down to the course, he went to, to practice, and I went to coach, and then, you know, that was it, and then, so anyway, then I'm, because of the experiences that I had in uh, Mexico City of, uh, the uh, extreme amount of trading of stuff that goes on is sort of the uh, uh, one of the things that that's sort of a, a entertainment, I guess, and, and this kind of cool stuff is that for pins and for uh, uh, shirts and for sweatsuits and for every other thing, uh, they, they would trade. And, and, and uh, going just for a quick second to give you the, why, I, uh, why I knew about this, is uh, w when I was in, in Mexico and, and we were up in our, our dorm, they had e they each, we had our different buildings. And so anyway, these two Soviet guys walk into their building or into our dorm and say, change. And didn't, that was the only English they spoke was that word change. And so they proceeded to strip. I mean, everything, they, they, they took off their shoes, their, their, their socks, their pants, their shirts, their watches. They, everything they had, the only thing they left on was their underwear. The only thing they left with that they came in with was the underwear. And they they traded for everything, anything that anybody wanted to trade, you know, they, 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 and uh, 
And the Cubans, uh, which anybody that's thinking of uh, the, the benefits of uh, socialism and the, you know and how wonderful it is, uh, they would trade anything for a pair of jeans because the jeans they were getting were terrible. And they, they, they pull a pair of jeans on the leg and rip off. You know, that's, that's the kind of quality they were getting. So they were, they were crazed for jeans. So they would trade complete sweatsuits or everything. So I learned all this stuff. Okay, so when I go to when I go to Montreal, hey, I'm gonna be ready. So I had a whole bag full of old shirts and different stuff, and I traded for other. You know, I I got a whole collection of Olympic ties because a lot of people didn't really want ties. So I said, hey, great Olympic ties. You know, this is awesome. So I got Czech ties and Brazilian ties and all, all the all these ties from all of the Olympic ties from all over the world, and uh, and then plus. All, you know, and pins were crazy, all this stuff. But anyway, so I'm in the Olympic uh, Village trading. And, uh, you know, I have the, my bag of stuff, and I'm trading pins and different stuff. And so Walter walks up, and he says, hey, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. So I, I walk, walk away with him for a minute, and, he, and uh, you know, so out of earshot of anybody. And he said, well, can you give me, a, can you help me? And I said, yeah, what do you need? And he said, well, I'm thinking about defecting, and I need someone to help me. And I said, hey, let, what, let's do it. And he said, well, well here's the plan. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pretend we're, we're trading. We're going to pretend we're changing stuff up in my dorm, and uh, which was in a different building from where the American team was. And, uh, and then, but we're going to, so we're going to go and pretend we're trading, and then you can grab my bag, because I want to I be able to walk out of the Olympic Village with more than just my sweatsuit. I want to have, you know, my toothbrush and my, you know, some other clothes. And so, so I said, great. So, uh, so he says, here's the plan. We're going to go in, pretend we're trading. And then you're going to walk out with my bag and I'm going to walk out with your bag. And I say, and then we'll go over to your place and drop my stuff off. And then, so then the Maudis can go by for when I defect. So anyway, um, uh, so I said, great, let's do it. And, uh, and so anyway, so we headed right up to, right up to his, he took me up to his dorm room. And we walk in, and as chance would have it, they have huge t They had a huge TV in there, and there was about 18 guys in there. And, and they have some some athletes, some coaches, and some of the and some and guards. They had a bunch of guards that were watching these guys. See, but anyway, so we walk in, and they're glued to the TV because Nadia Comaneci is on the balance beam doing her perfect ten. And so they they didn't even know we were in the room. They were just, oh, they're all glued to the TV. So I said, hey, Walter, uh, uh, let's not screw around. Let's just go. So so I grab his bag. He grabs my bag. And poof, we just drew out there. They didn't, nobody there even knew we were there. Uh, and so we just, you know, it was like clean clean getaway because nobody knew. And and then he, he got away. He, uh, he, he defected to Canada. He had a very successful... Life. He became a, a food manager at a restaurant in Whistler, uh, and so he had a wonderful life. He, had, he was married, a bunch of kids, and, and, and so he did really, really well, and it was all good. But the how how dangerous it was, I never I never appreciated. I I just uh, uh, I, I just didn't even have any idea. And he was he was tried in absentia in Romania, sentenced to twenty years at hard labor uh, for defecting. And, uh, and then he, he lived a secret life in Canada. Uh, and whenever he communicated with his parents back in Romania, he would send a, he would send a letter to Austria. His, uh, his buddy in Austria would change the envelope, 
put the letter in an Austrian envelope and send it to his parents. And they, and so they wouldn't have any trace of where, where he was, where he was or anything. And, uh, but that's the way, but with Ceausescu there, it was, it was really serious stuff. And this, this autocratic, uh, uh, kind of government, uh, you know, the communist government boy is, uh, is pretty serious stuff. And, and it's not, uh, it's not like fun and games, which, I did. I really didn't appreciate how dangerous it was, but it was it was darn dangerous. Awesome, serious, incredibly moving stories, and uh, to know anyone that's helped someone defect during the Olympic Games, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. I've never you know come across these stories too often. You can't make this stuff up. Um, but moving on uh, from all this, uh, the Olympic Games and all your experience, uh, what is the best, uh, what would you say the best advice is for listeners, anyone out there who are interested in trying a sport or any new sport? Well, I think it's, it's great for, for, for anybody, but for, especially for kids, to try different sports. Because actually, <laughs> When when I went to when I went to uh, high school in uh, in Ridley uh, uh, College in, in St. Catharines, Ontario, uh, it was uh, kind of a uh, uh, strict, uh, to say the least, uh, kind of thing with strapping and caning and all this kind of stuff. It, it was uh, pretty uh, serious, serious stuff. Uh, but anyway, they also uh, uh, were not very encouraging, or, or they didn't really have any good coaches, and they were they didn't really they would tell you hey, you suck at stuff, but they didn't really tell you how to get better. But what the what the uh, gym coach out there would do is he say, okay, now get out there and go uh, jump on that horse or do these exercises, and whatever I whatever he told me to do, he say, well, see what he did. Don't do that. You know that's that's not what it's because guess what? Somebody that's six foot six. Uh, is not going to be a gymnast. I mean, uh, so, and Mary Lou Retton, if you put Mary Lou Retton in a rowing boat, she's going to be uh, pretty slow because she's too little. I mean, she's not, you know, she's not the right, she's a great girl for a uh, gym, gymnast, obviously, world champion, but, and an Olympic champion, but in rowing, she's not suited to be a rower. And the same thing with, with diving. You know, somebody that's, Six foot six is not going to be a, 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 a Olympic diver. It is no way. You, your your moment of inertia is is too great, uh, and it, it's there's certain so there's certain sports that certain people with certain physical and, and mental characteristics and biological characteristics are going to be good at, and some that they're not, and and so and, and unless you try different things, you really never will know what you know what your best sport might be or you're not you wouldn't be sure uh, and so if a lot of the sports that i played when i was young i you know i was okay at but i never was really super good at and i mean like you know world champion or anything and uh but then until i found rowing which was totally by chance i mean i didn't even know it was a sport I mean, you know, really, I mean, my grandfather did it, but he never talked about it, you know, so, so I didn't, you know, it wasn't, so I just stumbled into it, but the whole, yeah, the whole thing is try, try different things. And then the other thing is, unless you really love something, if you hate, if you hate doing a sport, you're never going to be any good at it because it's, 
it's too hard. It's too hard to do all the practice of training and everything. <clears throat> and, and you can't, and if you, if you don't love it, you have no chance. And, and uh, like with rowing, uh, my, my wife is always saying, well, how come you're always late? You know, cause, well, basically I lose track of time. I don't even, I, I'm out there exercising, but, but because I'm liking it so much, I don't really, the, the time just passes and, and I, it's, it's, uh, it's not like it's, uh, it's, it's a chore to do it. It's hard to do, but it's, it's kind of, it's fun. And so if it's fun and, and, uh, and the other thing for kids is that some of these sports that, it, it, that you may not have been exposed to, and rowing is one of them, uh, it, it's a wonderful way to get a, to get a, if you, if you like it and if you're good at it, if you're, if it, if you get to be good at it, it's a wonderful way to get, get a scholarship to go to college or to get admitted to go to college, that, that, to like a, an Ivy League college or something, that because if the coach wants you, boom, you instead, you, you, you're not playing the game, the admissions game, which is the huge, huge stack of, uh, of applications. You're, you're talking about the, the little tiny stack of applications. Or in Jack's case, uh, you're in. I mean, in other words, like there's no stack. It's just okay. Okay, he's in. You know, and there's some schools, you know, Cal being one, and and uh, you know, a lot of schools that they'll okay, boom, and and they'll just they'll just admit people, and uh, they won't even go through the the uh, you know the regular admission process. Or I mean, you know, they get admitted, but I mean, they don't have to compete with all these you know thousands and thousands of other applicants. Yeah, and we all know the scandal that has going, been going on with uh, all the admission scandals with the NCAA. And, you know, I remind people, yeah, it's terrible, uh, but um, it is a way to get into colleges as far as the real way is to obviously keep your grades up, to keep your SAT scores up, your ACT. And then with rowing, the cool thing is... Um, you know, you could send in your uh, machine score or your ergometer score. What we do in class, what row works is in indoor rowing classes, and you send that score in. And if the score is good enough, uh, the coach will, uh, you know, let kind of let give you a extra, you know, invite and and get you that extra uh, admission to get into the schools. Now, you have to keep your grades up, and you cannot lie. And which I've had a few parents say, oh, can we just, and I'm, I won't do it because that, that screws with your integrity, just like what's going on now with uh, all the stuff in the news. I'm not going to be like that. Now, I know a lot of coaches, I have a lot of power in knowledge, but am I going to put my name out there and say, oh, this kid can do that when he can't? No. So it definitely takes hard work, patience, persistence, and you have to, again, love what you do. Um, and I think loving what you do comes from trying many, many different sports. I grew up always being asked, okay, what are we doing next? We're doing soccer, baseball by my father influence again, a legacy, but influence on, okay, what, what are we going to do? Are we going to play hockey? I loved high ice hockey. So I played that. That was influence. And okay, are we going to do soccer, baseball? And one day I didn't like my coaches. I wasn't having fun anymore. Um, and it was a really hard decision. I was very, my pride, everything was, 
I felt like I was letting people down as far as my teammates, also my father. And then I came home and, you know, I was like, well, what about that rowing thing? And that's when it all started. So, um, a new chapter, uh, a new book, really, I mean, just everything started from that moment. Um, my life changed and then it developed into endurance sports, multi-sport and everything. So, um, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Trying every sport you can and having fun with it, having a passion, loving what you do. I remember in college, uh, Working out, this was just one of those days, many, many days where I was killing myself in workouts. But I remember just running along and and going, man, you know, it'd be cool to get paid to work out. <laughs> like, cause I'm doing this, I love doing it, but it'd be cool, you know, and now I'm doing what I love. And, you know, I'm obviously trying to find more avenues to get uh, more income. It's a hard uh, being a personal trainer, being a fitness gym owner is a very hard uh, way to do it. But if you can let your passion uh, guide you and let that uh, lead lead you, I think uh, those people, uh, their true message will come out, and um, they're not gonna they're gonna sound more genuine than other people who are just kind of faking it. So uh, that's what we're all trying to do here, and just trying to share with you these stories and these incredible people. Uh, that I'll have on the show in the future. Um, but moving on, um, just, you know, ending with a few questions here, I guess, what would be three words um, that define you? What are three words that would define you? Well, <clears throat> I think one of the, uh, one of the things is, is I, uh, I got into something I loved and then I, I, uh, set a you know set a goal and uh and then followed it and and uh and then but uh it's not just the it, it's not just the goal a lot of people could set goals and say oh yeah i'm gonna make the olympics but it's what you what do you what do you what you what are you gonna do tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and actually i got a lot of great help uh once i you know once i decided what i wanted to do from um, uh, a coach uh, that was at Vesper who came from Ratsburg in Germany, uh, Dietrich Rose. And he actually wrote out for me, because I asked him, because uh, he was our coach in, uh, in Vichy, France. And uh, so I, I, that, that winter I said, hey look, I'm, I'm gonna go for the Olympics, so what, what, what should be my training program uh, for this, this coming year? So he actually wrote me like a six-page letter, which uh, had my the workout for every day for the whole year, starting in December. And he and he went, you know, okay, here's you know. In other words, he'd say, okay, now you do uh, uh, do two thousand meters, uh, you know, at this stroke rating, and then. Uh, to, and then change, you know, go to a different, go, go to a start, do 2,000 meters at a at a 20, and then do 2,000 meters at a uh, 23, and then do 2,000 meters at a 24, and then, uh, and then, you know, do some, and then later on in the season was do more, more 500s, and then they had pyramids, these are where they, they do, uh, uh, you start with uh, uh, warm-up strokes, and then you go to 40s and, uh, 30s and 40s, and, and, uh, 
all, all this whole thing uh, where they had, he had the whole, you know, he's laid it all out. And, and that's sort of, uh, so I guess it's, it's focus. Uh, you, you have to be focused to be successful at anything. Uh, and you, you can't uh, lose sight of what the, what the goal is, but you ha also have to follow through on uh, every day what, what you have to do because it's, uh, uh, you can't lay around uh, and, you know, and then expect stuff to happen. You have to make stuff happen and, and by hard work. Uh, and so I, I guess... Uh, uh, so what I hear is goal setting focus and hard work and follow through and yeah. follow through yeah. yeah those are uh things we all hear uh all the time but it's a matter of practice and doing them every day uh there was a guy a famous rower single scholar by the name of thomas langer he's from germany uh, he won two gold medals and a uh, bronze uh, three consecutive olympics in the single he is uh Though on the modern side, you know, wrote in the 80s and 90s, but he's one of my um, heroes more because uh, Zeno Mueller looked at him too as one of his heroes. And Zeno Mueller also won a gold and silver medal in the single, and then follow up that up with all the other rowers uh, now presently. But these guys set the stage. And I remember someone asking Thomas Langer, I was at a seminar with him. And someone said, well, what's your secret? What's your secret to success? How did you, you know, in, in one word, what would you say your secret to success was? And he looks at the guy in the room and I'm looking over, we're all looking to see what he's, he's going to say. And they translate to him and he's like, he, he literally is like, what, what? He has this confused look on his face, like one word. And he just goes, hard work in English. And he's very... He, but he knew, like, he, he spelled it out in English. He wasn't going to say it in German. He's like, he didn't know much English, but he's like, oh, lots and lots and lots of hard work. That's your secret. There is no secret. It's called hard work, right? Persistence, patience, uh, goal setting, all these things that you keep doing day to day. Um, and with a little bit of luck, right? Threading the needle involved, a, a lot of legacy, a lot of uh, help, uh, yeah. assistance and help. Um, but having the right people uh, around you, you can control those things. Sometimes you can't, um, but you try and do your best. So these are all great things. Um, and then I guess in closing, I didn't really get to talk about this, but this is a huge part of the legacy, you guys, uh, that, uh, comes from me being a product of 84, 84 Olympics, 84 foundation, uh, started the junior crew and um, basically 10 years later, the junior crew started. I started rowing. That's how I got to be in the program in Long Beach. And then I got a scholarship to Berkeley, a national team. But my father uh, was also the one to uh, really uh, set out and, and, and really organize the uh, rebuilding of the Long Beach Rowing Association and the boathouse expansion. So in Long Beach, we had the original building in 1968 for the 68 trials, uh, but it hadn't been worked on or changed or upgraded since that time. So in um, 1996, my father, before actually I started rowing, started this, pro this process of 
getting um, the boathouse uh, expanded and double the size of the boathouse for future uh, programs like the junior program, high school kids that have like a couple hundred kids in there all year round, the college program, Long Beach State, the master's program, Long Beach Rowing Association, uh, the California Adaptive Rowing Program, which Angela Madsen right now is rowing across the Pacific to Hawaii from LA. She's a part of that California or CARP program that allows kids with disabilities to row every day uh, at down in Long Beach and, um, and also RowWorks. So we have five programs running out of the Long Beach uh, Rowing Association in part big time of the space we have to allow that to happen. Also in part because my father was the one that really headed that whole program and spearheaded that uh, initiative to get these things done. Now, tell us a, uh, a little more about that process as we conclude the interview here. I want to kind of dive into that a little bit, but tell us that process and how uh, you you saw the vision to do that and really the hurdles and overcoming all those things to get that thing done. Well, uh, several of us had uh, been talking about uh, maybe expanding the boathouse or something for a while. Uh, A.C. DuPont had some ideas of what to do, and uh, he and he and I, uh, he was he was president of the of the club at the time, and uh, and any anyway, uh, then I uh, I decided to uh, oh, and then what happened? One day we were down there, and that uh, uh, Spinnaker Bay is this uh, housing development next door. And they had been, uh, the, the, the place used to be during the 32 Olympics, it was all oil wells. And they, in the pictures that they're all drilling rigs that are all over this, the area that, that where the Spinnaker Bay is right now. But they had, they had made a bunch of houses, but they hadn't, they uh, had some housing downturn or something at some point. And so they'd stopped. And, uh, and then, we, uh, in 1996, uh, AC and I saw uh, surveyor stakes go out over on the, on the land next to where the boathouse is. And we said, wow, we better get our act together and get, uh, get this thing going because if we don't, there are going to be houses there and we're never going to get anything done because we wanted, to, we wanted to expand this boathouse. And once there's somebody there, we knew uh, we knew it was going to be a problem, so we started, and uh, we uh, we found actually it took a while, but we we uh, found a, a an architect that would uh, draw up because we didn't have any money either, and uh, he would draw up the site plan, the floor plan, and the uh, elevations for free, and we took that and went through. With a small, we had we got in a, we got in a small amount of money, and uh, but uh, we took that, and uh, but we didn't pay him anything for this, and we went all through the planning commission, the city council, and the coastal commission without spending any money at all, and got approval for everything, and I talked to uh, uh, developers uh, since then that, that are uh, incredulous that we were able to do that because they've had nothing but problems. So somehow we just, you know, we got 
well, first of all, it was it was all for recreation and it was all for good things. And it wasn't, you know, we weren't building the hotel or anything. It wasn't a money-making thing. It was just for, for sports. And so luckily, uh, we they, they uh, treated us favorably and we got all the approvals and, and we got it all done. And one of the, one of the things that never was done uh, in, in the, the 68 boathouse, which was the replacement for the 1932 boathouse, was uh, there were no, no women's restrooms, no women's shower rooms, no women's locker rooms, because at that point in time, there was no women's rowing. Women's rowing didn't exist in the United States until 1973 when they announced it was going to be an Olympic sport and all of a sudden, boom, it exploded. And now women's rowing is, is bigger than men's rowing in the United States because of all the uh, support they're getting from NCAA programs and uh, uh, all the scholarships that are basically offsets for football for the universities because the rowing is one of the big offsets. Women's rowing is a big offset for, for men's football uh, in terms of equal opportunity for men and women in the in uh, university athletics, but anyway, <clears throat> this took this project took twelve years, and we had to we had to raise the money. Uh, uh, some of it being uh, my own, <laughs> but uh, we got a grant from the uh, uh, Southern California. Uh, well, it was the the uh, uh, let's see, they changed the name. It's, it, it used to be. Uh, the Amateur Athletic Foundation, but now it's uh, now it's the uh, LA eighty four Foundation, and they uh, they gave us uh, uh, two hundred twenty five thousand, and it was primarily for the junior program and for uh, making it uh, for providing women's facilities and for uh, making it uh, handicap uh, accessible. So uh, and it it all it all worked out. The project ended up uh, we had to raise over a million dollars to get it done. But now we have a, uh, a boathouse with uh, six bays. Uh, we have uh, uh, 250 boats in the boathouse. Uh, we, we have about in excess of 400 people a day uh, during, the, during the season uh, using it, using the facilities. Uh, and uh, it's been terrific. And we've had just a lot of kids. Uh, Getting, uh, getting admitted and getting scholarships to universities through this program. At, at, at one point, they were winning a lot of races and uh, uh, there was a team that went back to the head of the Charles in a four. <clears throat> and the, the four started way back in the pack because uh, it, it's a big, it, it, in other words, everyone tries to get, enter every year and then so they every year they move up and they or they start in first place or whatever because it's an advantage to not have to row through traffic well anyway this team was started like 50th or something they passed 20 crews and they set a course record and it was so impressive and they were the girls junior girls it was so impressive the coach of michigan came down to the boat and said uh, you, I'll give you, I'll get you a scholarship to Michigan, the University of Michigan, if you, uh, if you, if you want to come. Uh, that, that uh, so right at right at the race in October, this is in October, he's uh, guaranteeing admission the next the next uh, uh, May for uh, for this young lady to uh, to go to the University of Michigan. I mean, that, it, it's so actually that kind of stuff happens, and and so that was all part of this. Uh, 
we, by expanding like this, we may, you know, we, we, we have all this capacity to handle people and, and uh, it really is a, a wonderful facility and it, uh, it, it we, because we did it ourselves and, uh, and uh, did it as, as inexpensively as possible, we, uh, uh, we did it without, you know, spending a fortune like uh, something like six to eight million, which is what most of these colleges are spending for their new boathouses. Yeah, so I would say that that's a huge uh, legacy uh, that you have left behind. Also, many others that have helped. And then the LA84 Foundation um, that got to match those funds to help build the boathouse out in order to have um, more space for those programs, uh, better boats, better equipment. And um, therefore, you get this domino effect. You get kids talking about it. Uh, they went to Michigan, or uh, I knew a few people, Harvard, Yale, um, myself at Berkeley. Uh, we've had a few at Stanford, uh, definitely some Washington uh, rowers, and Wisconsin. So all over the map, Boston uh, University. So it's, and then I come around and coach some of these kids on the junior program, or I'm kind of mentoring them, you know obviously telling them to listen to their coaches, but I'm kind of giving them just some free information here and there because it's my passion. And I wish I knew these things as a kid uh, moving through. So you have me kind of uh, walking through or my father. So that's kind of the legacy and the story of, um, there's a lot more to it, but it's kind of like a nice, story to start with uh, in this podcast and just moving forward as we do these. Um, my plan was to do them once a week or so and get uh, athletes in particular, hopefully more uh, from some Olympic games uh, that have shown courage, persistence, hard work and leaving that legacy behind and turning it into something that is so useful on the back end for people to look up to and follow. And I think that that's what life is kind of about, is following your passion and leaving a, a trail, um, leaving a, leading and, and leaving this trail and lead, lead, leaving a legacy. So um, so thank you guys for, for joining in and uh, thanks again to my father uh, for it's, it's so funny because every time I learn a little bit more each each time, it's like I hear these stories throughout my life and then I go, what? I, 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 I'm learning something new every time. So it's, it's cool for me. Um, and I'm just honored to, yeah, be a part of uh, this whole experience and this whole journey. Life is, uh, the journey is the reward. That's what I got from my dad. That was my speech at the Long Beach Aquatic Capital of America winning athlete of the year. And my, my speech was that guidance, the journey is a reward. So hopefully this inspires you all to be better athletes, to follow your dreams, to follow your passion, to find um, your niche, your thing. And, um, and if you're interested in rowing, you know where to, you know where to go, Long Beach, California, or the RowWorks Indoor Rowing Center at rowworks.com. Uh, you can get your kids started at the Long Beach Junior Rowing Association. Uh, you can also, if you're an adult and you wanna learn how to row, we have a program with the Masters, Long Beach um, 
Rowing Association Masters rowers and AC and there's others that are there. Sarah McKenzie is part of our CARP. Um, we have Angela Madsen who's also rowing as I said uh, as we speak. She's rowing to Hawaii solo and um, so we have so many different programs so come on down or reach out and uh, follow us every week here on the Rowworks Legacy Podcast. Thanks again for John Nunn, my father, uh, Pop, for being here. And I appreciate all you guys for listening in. Till next week, you guys. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the Rowworks Legacy Podcast. Make sure to visit www.rowworks.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and all other major streaming platforms. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or that you simply tell a friend about us. Remember to be inspired, stay positive, stay active, and leave a great legacy while blazing a trail for others to follow. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode.